Good morning. Uh, God's grace is sufficient even for the vilest of offenders. Um, I love that testimony uh, for many reasons. Uh, Sonia's story is one of somebody who came to Christ out of a, a lifestyle of licentiousness, of, uh, of, of promiscuity, uh, of, of license, if you will. And God dramatically changed her and her husband. Uh, what a wonderful testimony. And the reason why I showed this to you this morning is because uh, many of the Corinthians who were a part of this uh, church that Paul writes to in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, probably, most likely, we know some of them came out of, of a very similar lifestyle. Uh, some of them, if not many of them, came out of a very promiscuous, uh, licentious um, lifestyle. And Christ got a hold of them and saved them. Uh, but it wasn't always uh, picture perfect. In fact, they still struggled. Uh, they still struggled with some of the sins that they struggled with in their past. And Paul, here in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 uh, and 6, is where we're going to be. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point and open to 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Uh, Paul is going to address some of those issues that uh, they haven't quite left behind. Uh, if you recall, uh, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians pretty quickly, kind of in an overview fashion. And the first half, if not maybe third, of the book of 1 Corinthians is a Paul essentially is writing a letter to them and he's saying, I've heard about some things that are happening in your church and I've heard about some of the things that are happening with individuals in your church. Uh, I've been informed of them, so I'm going to address them. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at divisions in the church. In fact, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 essentially deal with the infighting and the quarrels and the pride that was going on in this church. Well, Paul is going to shift gears a little bit to three more subjects. And so if you are with me in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, uh, we are going to cover 5 and 6 and look at three more issues. Uh, I've entitled the sermon, License, Litigation, and Lust. Three topics that Paul is going to address uh, both in their life and in ours. So let's pray. I trust that you're there. And uh, let's get right to our text. Father, thank you. It is a privilege for us to be here together. I pray that you would speak to us through your holy and inspired and inerrant word, that we might hear from you, that our hearts and our minds would be free from clutter and distraction. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts and soften our minds so that we might not just hear your word, but that we might become doers of your word. And I pray if there's someone here, a, a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, who is much like Sonia, they have not trusted in Christ, and they're living in all sorts of sin, whether it be big in the world's eyes or small, may they turn and trust in Jesus, who is both their Savior and their Lord, who can change them, who can wash them, who can forgive them, and who can reconcile them to the Father and give them new and everlasting life. We pray it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. And I think oftentimes uh, it's easy for us to forget uh, that with certain rights also come responsibilities. With certain, uh, with the receiving of a license, uh, there are also laws that come into effect. We are a nation uh, that values freedom And uh, we are a nation, rightly so, that values rights. But I think oftentimes we forget that with those rights come responsibilities. And with that freedom uh, comes responsibility to the law. I want to share with you a quick story about that in my life. You may have heard of it if you've been here a while, but you get to enjoy hearing it again. Uh, When I was 16 years old... uh, there's a, there's a major event that happens in uh, almost every young person's life. They turn 16, and then what do they receive most often? 
their, their driver's license, right? And so I, uh, at the age of 16, received my driver's license. And uh, for a 16-year-old boy, a driver's license meant one thing, freedom, right? Uh, with a driver's license and a car, of course, uh, comes freedom to go where I want to go and to be where I want to be. And uh, when I received that driver's license, I felt like I could do whatever I wanted to. I kind of felt like there was nothing restraining me. Uh, certainly not helping that was my mom and dad somehow entrusting me with a, what year was it? Probably a 95 green Ford Mustang. It was a sweet car, uh, and I don't know why my mom and dad bought it for me. <laughs> I won't do that for my kids, but apparently I had, I had built up the old uh, trust bank account pretty well uh, because they thought I could handle that. Well, uh, they were partly right and partly wrong. Long story short, I was late to a church softball game, and maybe you've heard the story. It was raining that morning, and so the roads were a little slick, and I was uh, actually doing something for a friend. His car had broken down, and I was helping him, so that made me late to this church softball game. And so I thought, you know, I have a fast car, and uh, I can get to the softball fields, which usually took about 30 minutes, and about 15 minutes if I just went a, a little faster. And so I got on the highway, and I jumped on the interstate, and I think the, I think the speed limit was 65, and I think when the cop pulled me over, he said I was going 93, I believe. Um, so I was a 16-year-old boy with a pretty brand new car who just went, oh, about 20 miles, or 30, close to 30, close to 30 miles per hour over the speed limit. And uh, the cop was threatening uh, to throw me in jail because I was endangering myself and others because the roads were slick. Well, needless to say, I didn't go to jail, and uh, I did get a ticket. But uh, worse than that was facing my mom and dad, right? Uh, mom and dad, you just got me a brand new, uh, not brand new, but new to me, uh, Mustang. And um, I thought it meant freedom, but I failed to realize that it also meant uh, responsibility. Uh, I thought it was my ticket to do whatever I wanted, but I forgot that with that freedom and with that right and with that privilege came responsibilities, came laws that I needed to follow, like going the speed limit, right? Uh, not going 30 miles per hour, over it. You know, as we turn to the book of First Corinthians, what we're going to find out is that these Christians, uh, they're in Corinth, or at least the vast majority of them, uh, saw their faith in terms of liberty. They saw their faith in terms of freedom, but they forgot the responsibility. They saw their faith as a license to do essentially whatever they wanted. They were forgiven. They were reconciled with God. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit. However, the culture at large, had so influenced them that they had a skewed view of grace. They didn't realize that with rights came responsibilities. With license came law. And so Paul uh, is going to address this. We see this attitude uh, four times in this book, two times in this little section that we have here in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. And it goes something like this. In the NIV that I'm reading out of, it goes like this. They, Paul quotes their slogan. It's like a motto that they had. And it was this, I have the right to do anything. That's how the NIV translate it, translates it. I have the right to do anything. Your transla translation may say something like, everything is permissible for me. Uh, it was a slogan. It was kind of their motto. They thought that they had rights without responsibilities. And this led, of course, to a lax morality, both individually and in the church. It led to kind of a laissez-faire mentality towards sin. Clearly, it shows up 
uh, in this section in three areas. So first of all, Paul is going to address their attitude of what I will call license. That is, anything goes. Secondly, Paul is going to address their litigation. There were lawsuits going on in the church. And thirdly, Paul is going to address this attitude of freedom that comes across in their sexuality in the third section entitled Lust. So let's take a look at our first section. If you're taking notes, kind of the first main section is chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. And I've entitled it License. That is, they had a licentious view of sin in their church. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Uh, I had a friend and a roommate in college. My sophomore year, we had a, I think, a, maybe a two-bedroom apartment. There were four of us living there. And one of my friend's fathers was a vet. And so he had all sorts of cool things. But one of the things that I really enjoyed was that this guy had maybe a 50-gallon uh, a, a tank, fish tank, right? And so we had in our, um, in our little apartment this huge fish tank. And he had all sorts of cool fish, colorful fish, exotic fish, probably expensive fish. And I loved that. I loved sitting there studying and being able to be mesmerized by the fish. There's something soothing about it, you know. And so I really enjoyed having the fish tank. However, uh, something, something kind of went uh, awry. Uh, one day, my friend said, you know, there's a fish in there, and he just doesn't look right. I'm going to call my dad. And to make a long story short, he found out, we found out, that this fish had some kind of disease. Uh, there was some kind of disease in this fish, and he was not well. And to protect both this fish, and in particularly the rest of the fish in the tank, he had to be removed, and he had to be isolated for a while. My friend's dad, I think, sent us some fish medicine, I suppose is what you call it. And the fish got better. The fish healed, but he had to be isolated from the rest of the fish in the tank so that he wouldn't endanger them. A similar scenario was happening there in Corinth. In uh, chapter 5, what we see is that there was one member, and I use the word member loosely, there was one uh, person, he was a professing Christian, he was a part of the church family, and he was, in a similar way, diseased with sin. He was sickened with sin. He was engaging in what was an unrepentant uh, sexual relationship with most likely his stepmother. We don't know if his father was dead or alive at the time, uh, but what we do know is that he was in in, uh, a sexual relationship with her. And what was worse about it, what really got Paul angry was not just this Christian who was unrepentant of this sinful lifestyle. What really got him was that the rest of the Christians seemed to support it. The rest of the Christians, in some weird, wacky way, seem to boast about allowing this Christian brother of theirs to live in sin. They had a a skewed view of grace. And they thought, man, we're super gracious by not doing anything about this man. Look how gracious we are. And so what we see in this chapter, starting in verses 1 through 2, is that they were arrogantly boasting in the name of grace. Let's read this together. Verse 1, it it, it is actually reported, Paul says, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. And then he, he, he names it. He names the name. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So he names the sin. But then notice what he says in verse 2 about the church's response. And you are proud. They were proud of this. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning 
and have put out your fellow uh, and put and put out of out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. So he he names the sin. He he names their their prideful, arrogant boasting under the false guise of grace. And so he deals with the man. He tells them what they should do in verses 3 through 5. He says, this is what you should have done. You need to remove him from the sphere of influence, from the the sphere of protection in the local church. And you need to send him out into the world, into what he calls Satan's realm or Satan's domain, with the intended result that it be to his ultimate salvation. He wants the best for this man. And to remove him from the fellowship of the church was necessary for him. So let's read that, verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So he deals with the sin. He deals with their arrogance. He says, this is what should have been done. But then he goes on to move from the the man specifically to his effect on the church. Notice what he says in verses 6 through 8. He deals with the church's proud, boastful acceptance of this sin. And he warns them of the danger, not only for this man, but of his effect on the church as a whole. Verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that, you're, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He uses an Old Testament image. Uh, I think Dr. Constable explains it best. In his words, in Jewish life, it was customary to throw away or clean out all of the old leaven, that is the yeast, in the house when the family prepared for the Passover feast. So they were preparing for the Passover. It called for them to have unleavened bread so they would clean it out of the house. They did this so that the bread they made for Passover and the feast of unleavened bread that followed would be completely free of leaven. He explains it. This is what the Corinthians needed to do as a church so that they could worship God acceptably. He warns them that just a little bit of sin uh, that is allowed and boasted in in the church has an effect. It can spread throughout the body. And so he ends this brief section. He ends this brief section essentially uh, with a brief clarification. He's told them, listen, you don't need to put up with this. You need to remove him from fellowship so that ultimately he may be saved. And he wants to clarify something. He wrote something in a previous letter that he thinks they could misconstrue. And so in verses 9 through 13, he he kind of clears up this wrong inference that they could draw from his instruction. Let's read verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning, so here's, notice this, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, but that you should have, but uh, that, excuse me, in that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, 
but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those who are outside the church? Are you not to judge those who are inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So he wants to clarify. He's saying, listen, there's somebody who's living in unrepentant sin. And as a church, you need to handle that. But he wants to make it clear. What I'm not saying is that if there's someone who's not a Christian, if there's somebody who didn't name the name of Christ because they have some kind of immorality, that you should avoid them like the plague. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, if you wanted to avoid people like that, then you would have to leave the world. You would have to go live on the moon, right? He's saying, this is not what I'm saying. And so two principles. I think two principles from this little section that I want us to see. And they go together. They go hand in hand. The first one is this. We must avoid a spirit of license. We need to avoid a spirit of license. But secondly, we need to also avoid a spirit of legalism. So what do I, what do I mean that, by that? We need to, first of all, Avoid a spirit of license. That is, the view that it's okay to sin. God gives you grace. There's forgiveness of sin, so you can just do whatever you want. So let me ask you, uh, dear folks, individually, is, is, is that kind of your perspective on life? Do you have running through your thoughts, running through your minds, I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven. I know I'm right with God. I know that I can't lose my salvation. So therefore, what does it matter that I do with my life? What does it matter Uh, that I have poor attitudes towards my wife or my spouse? What does it matter that I drink too much and get drunk? What What does it matter? I'm forgiven. It's okay. Paul says, individually, we shouldn't have this spirit of license, but also corporately as a church. We shouldn't have this spirit of license. I'll be honest with you. My, one of my fears for our church is that we would be so, quote, gracious that when there are people who name the name of Christ and they come and they enter into to fellowship with our church, that if there ever is, God forbid, someone in uh, unrepentant sin and they're clinging to their sin, that we would just say, oh, we want to be gracious. We just want to be gracious people, right? We're not going to address it. We're not going to talk to them. We're not going to lovingly confront them. We're just going to be gracious. That's, that's, what, that's what the Corinthian church was doing. And Paul says, that's a skewed view of grace. The grace that forgives us is the grace that changes us. The grace that comes into our hearts to lead into a relationship with God is also the grace that causes us to want to follow God. So let's avoid individually and corporately this kind of a Corinthian spirit. But not only that, that's, that's one glove, right? There's another side to this coin. There's another glove, and we need to avoid the spirit of legalism. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul is addressing that. The spirit of legalism basically says, well, individually, I can't have a relationship with people who are in blatant sin. I can't have a relationship, be friends with someone uh, because she's promiscuous. I can't talk with that guy. I can't have a relationship with him because he, he cusses like a sailor. So I'm just going to avoid these kind of people, right? I'm going to avoid non-believers. Paul says, no, no, that's not what I mean, right? You engage with the gospel people who don't put their faith in Christ. Often churches uh, who have this kind of bent or fundamentalist kind of churches, they say, sin is out there and it's going to infect us, so we're just going to kind of have our little holy huddle here, right? And we're just going to love each other, but we're not going to engage the world. And Paul says, no, that's, that's not what I mean, right? You engage the world regardless of what people say, regardless of what they do, regardless of what kind of sin they commit. You, you engage them. You love them, right? What I'm not saying is avoid those people, right? He's saying take sin seriously in the church. 
So we've seen this first major issue, that of what I would call a, a, a spirit of license, right? He moves on, having spoken of the church judging its own, and he shifts gears, though, to a related subject. And the related subject not had to do with the church's failure to pass a, a sense of judgment or ruling on this unrepentant believer, but it actually has to do with the church as a whole, their failure to render judgment in a case between two Christians. So let's move on to chapter 6. And what we're going to see is that there was one Christian brother, and there was another Christian brother, and one had sued the other. And what was worst was the church was apparently unwilling to get involved. The church was apparently unwilling to say, I'll help you settle this matter. You don't have to go to court. You know, we live in a, um, a lawsuit-happy society, don't we? Shake your head, yes. We live in a lawsuit-happy society, right? We are a litigious people. We love taking people uh, to court. Let me just give you three uh, illustrations of how this can kind of go astray. Uh, number one, there was a story that I found of a man uh, who sued a family after getting stuck in their house that he was attempting to rob. So he was attempting to rob them, and he ended up getting stuck in their house. The article reads, in October of 1998, Terrence Dickerson of Bristol, Pennsylvania, was uh, exiting a house he finished robbing by the way of the garage. He was not able to get the garage door up because the automatic garage door opener was malfunctioning, and he couldn't re-enter the house because the door connecting the house and the garage locked when he pulled it closed. The family was on vacation. So Mr. Dickerson found himself locked in the garage for eight days. The article goes on to say that he subsisted on a case of Pepsi that he found in a large bag of dry dog food. And of course, he sued them (laughs) because he couldn't get out of the house that he was trying to break into. What do you think? Did that get tossed out? Yes, it did. Thankfully, it got tossed out. Here's another one that I I found uh, particularly interesting. Uh, Here's the headline. Man sues Bud, that is the beer maker, for not getting beautiful women. In 1991, Richard Overton sued Anheuser-Busch, creators of Budweiser, for $10,000. His claim? Well, he suffered emotional distress, mental injury, and financial loss because drinking beer did not make his fantasy of beautiful women in tropical settings come to life. And uh, he claimed that the advertisement said that it would. And he also claimed that that drove him to buy and to drink more and more Bud Light. (laughs) And, of course, the case was dismissed. Another one uh, that's interesting, uh, viewer sues NBC over Fear Factor rat-eating episode. I don't know if you watch Fear Factor. I don't. Uh, I was unaware that they had people eating rats, but here's how it goes. After watching an episode of the reality TV show Fear Factor on NBC, Austin Aiken sued the network for $2.5 million, (coughs) claiming that the side of contestants eating blended rats disgusted him so much that his health suffered. He says he claimed uh, that the show raised his blood pressure, made him dizzy, and caused him to vomit. He also became so disoriented that he smashed into a door, and of course the lawsuit was thrown out. Uh, We live in a litigious society, but not unlike the society there in Corinth. In fact, William Barclay in his commentary says this about the Corinthian society. He says, The Greeks were characteristically litigious people. The law courts were one of their chief entertainments. Did you catch that? They did it for fun, right? In a Greek city, every man was more or less a lawyer and spent 
every great part of his time either deciding or listening to law cases. And the point of this is, is that they were living in a lawsuit-happy society, just like we do, and this had crept into the church. So let's read what was going on. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Did you know that? Pretty cool. How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have a dispute about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to your shame. It is, possi- is, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to, ju- to judge a, disputing, a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and you do wrong and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. So, Paul essentially argues that, listen, don't you know as Christians, one day when Christ returns, you will be involved in judging both the world and angels. I don't know exactly what that means. We can talk about it later. But he says, in the future, you will, you will be judging. You will be making decisions, right? And so, if that's true of you in the future, then why can't you do it now, right? Your future state is not being lived out in your present. If you're not competent, if you're to be competent then, why can't you be now? And as Chuck Swindoll puts it, quote, regardless of the outcome of their suits, they're already losers because they've warred with each other in front of unbelievers. Just think of it. People who are supposed to love one another. That's what we're supposed to be marked by, loving one another. And we go before the world suing each other. That is what was going on. He wraps up his argument in a similar fashion than what he began. He, he wraps it up by saying that the Corinthians' present behavior, in particular, the guy who sued his brother and the brother who wronged his brother, right, that their behavior is not in line with their future positions in the kingdom, but more in line with who they used to be, with their past practice. Notice verses 9 through 11. I, uh, let's see, verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice the change here. What is their current identity? And that is what some of you, what? Were. That is what some of you were. But... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let me offer up a principle for us today. And it's, it's kind of a simple one. Don't go to court with fellow believers. Okay, simple enough, right? That's the, that's the plain application here, right? So there's not a place within the body of Christ for me as a professing Christian to take you as another professing Christian to court. But I want to... I wanna, extrapolate that a little bit. Not only should we not take them to legal court, but we should avoid taking them to the court of public opinion. Because there's a legal court, but there's also the court of public opinion. So let me ask you a question. When you are wronged by someone in the church, 
when you are wronged by a fellow believer, where do you go? Who do you talk to? Your friends? Your barber? The coffee shop? Your co-workers? Your children? Are some of them, uh, some of them unbelievers? They don't profess the same faith that you do? Can we not be just as guilty? Maybe we don't sue each other in a civil court, but we go to the court of opinion before unbelievers to settle our matters, right? Or at least to complain about the other. Instead of going to that person, trying to reconcile, seeking repentance and forgiveness, and what if that doesn't work? Well, what Paul is saying is, is this, is that the church can act as an arbiter, that the church can act, or maybe individuals in the church that you both mutually trust, that you can go to them and say, help us settle this issue, right? Help us settle what is going on. And so we should follow in line with that. So we've seen a couple issues, right? There is the man who is involved in incest. There were two brothers who were involved in a lawsuit. And Paul moves on uh, to talk about a third area that this licentious uh, kind of love of freedom without law perspective really came to bear. And it had to do with their sexuality. Their skewed view of freedom crescendos, right? It crescendos as Paul tackles them going to pagan temples and worshiping pagan gods, in a sense, using prostitutes. So let's go to lust. Verses 12 through 20. So we saw a couple weeks ago that this culture, the Corinthian culture, was a sex-saturated culture, right? Very much like our culture, sex-saturated. In fact, we saw a picture of the mountain where there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, and it was regularly uh, manned, for lack of a better word, by a thousand female prostitutes. Uh, This was the pagan culture, and some of these Christians were involved in that before they became Christians. And so this kind of freedom that the Corinthians were viewing, this kind of laissez-faire view of sin— allowed them to keep doing that. They were doing this. So uh, Paul addresses that. But let me, let me venture to say that the same way that the sex-saturated culture of Corinth was infiltrating the church in Corinth, our sex-saturated culture infiltrates our churches today, right? It infiltrates believers individually and corporately. I want to share with you a, a brief study. Uh, many of you are familiar with George Barna. Uh, George Barna is essentially a Christian statistician. He does all sorts of polls. He's a pollster, and he puts together all sorts of data. And in a a recently published article that was entitled this, A New Generation of Adults Bends Moral and Sexual Rules to Their Liking. Uh, He uh, he states the following, so I just want to share a few of his findings. Quote, A new nationwide survey, survey from the Barna Group examines one of the largest gaps in the moral persuasions of Americans. That is, uh, two groups of people to where there's a large disagreement on morality. The difference between Christians in their 20s and 30s, which is called the buster generation, and those over the age of 40. So this is what he's examining. What do people who are Christians, so-called born-again Christians, in their 20s and 30s, and in their 40s and up? He is saying that there's a vast difference between their view of morality, in particular, uh, sexuality. So he, he continues. In terms of attitudes towards certain behavior, the typical pattern was for the born-again adult 
over 40 to be more closely aligned with biblical perspectives, followed far behind other segments, included younger Christians. What is he meaning? That those 40 and over have a view of sexuality and morality that's much more biblical than those younger. That's what he's saying. Uh, So, here's some examples. For example... Just 33% of born-again older adults, so 33% of adults 40 and over, believe that cohabitation, living together before you're married, is morally acceptable, right? So 33% of born-again adults over 40. What do you think the stat is of those uh, 20s and 30s? What do you think? Well, he goes on to say, uh, by way of contrast, uh, some 60% of those in their 20s and 30s agree that cohabitation is morally acceptable, So we move from 33% to 60%. However, compared to non-Christians, so let's compare that 60%. What about those who are non-Christian? They don't have any faith affiliation. What percentage of those do you think that cohabitation, just to name one particular area, is okay? Well, upwards of 80% of non-Christians felt like it was acceptable. So what's the difference between Christians who think it's acceptable and non-Christians? What percentage? 60, 80, 20%. That's pretty, that's pretty pathetic, <laughs> you know? Uh, and that's just one example. He goes on to write, this same response pattern was evident when it came to other issues such as sexual fantasies, abortion, sex, out of, uh, sex outside of marriage, pornography, and he goes on and on. In other words, he's saying that trend continues. He wraps up the article with these kind of ominous words. The director of research, David Kinneman, pointed out, quote, the research shows that people's moral profile is more likely to resemble that of their peer group than it is to take shape around the tenets of a person's faith. What does that mean? He's saying that culture is beginning to affect the church, right? That the culture is beginning to affect the church more than the Bible. That's what he's saying. He ends by saying, this research paints a compelling picture that moral values are shifting very quickly and significantly within, notice, within the Christian community as well as outside of it. So in this last section, Paul is going to address an issue that is so prevalent in our culture today. So first of all, verses 12 through 14. Paul begins by refuting the rationalizations. So they were rationalizing their sexual sin. They were rationalizing going to the temple prostitute, verses 12 through 14. I have the right to do anything. That was their slogan, right? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, they say, but I will not, Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both. But he counters by saying, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. The Lord is for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us up too. So he counters their rationalization. They're saying, listen, it doesn't matter what we do. Uh, Our bodies aren't going to exist forever, which was a wrong view, but that's what they thought. And they said, listen, having sex with whomever you want is just like eating. When your stomach growls, it's a natural inclination to go eat. So they say when your sexual appetite begins to growl, just indulge. That's what their rationalization was. And he says, listen, (laughs) 
That's, that's not right, right? He says that's not the way it works. The body will exist forever, and the body exists for the Lord if you're a Christian, right? So he refutes their rationalization. And secondly, he gives two reasons for righteousness. He says this is why you should pursue sexual purity as a Christian. The first one is found in verses 13 through 17. And essentially what he says is this. He says, we carry around Christ with us wherever we go and in whatever we do. He's going to paint a very vivid picture here in verse 13 through 17. And so I don't think I need to explain it, but just use, just connect the dots. We carry Christ around with us because we are united with Christ when we become a Christian, wherever we go and in whatever we do. Notice what he says in verses 13 through 17. He says this. Uh, Let's see. Let's, uh, Let's start by 15. Verses 15, excuse me. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? There you go. Shall, shall then, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whomever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Did you get the image? It's a very vivid image. We take Christ with us wherever we go, including the bedroom, is what he says. He gives a second reason, and it's simply this. Our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to Christ. Verses 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that, you, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I'm sure we've all seen it. We've been at a business place. There was a restaurant that we used to like, and there's a sign hanging on the window when we enter it, and it says, under new management. You ever done that before? And you think, oh, great, I like the old one better, right? Uh, under new management, you know something's going to change, right? You know the, there's a new boss, right? What essentially Paul is saying is that when we trust in Christ and the Spirit comes to indwell us permanently, it's like a sign that says, under new management, right? When the Spirit comes inside of us, our bodies are no longer our own. So therefore, God gets to decide what we do with our bodies and our sexuality. So here's a final principle. Watch for a culture-conformed view of sexuality. So let me ask you a simple question. What informs your view of sex and sexuality? That is, who determines what is good and bad? Who determines what is right and wrong? Who determines what is, what is healthy and what is not healthy? Who determines, who determines that for you? What shapes your view of sexuality? Do you get to decide that? Does God get to decide that? If you're a Christian, what Paul is saying is that if you're a Christian, God gets to decide that. And we need to be very careful as Christians, and in particular those of you who are younger, who are 30 and 20 and teenagers. We tend to think that the culture and our friends and the TV and the, and the movies and the internet gets to decide what sex is and how it's used. But the hard truth is, but it's a, 
liberating truth is that if you've united your, 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 your person with Christ and you're a Christian and you love Jesus, then he gets to determine what you think about when you think of sex and sexuality. So, so who, who informs your view of sex? Culture says that it's when you're captivated by someone, right? That's what culture says. When you're captivated by someone, God says it's when you're committed to someone in marriage that it's healthy. Culture says it's just casual. The idea of casual sexuality. Nothing can be more alive from the pit of hell. There is nothing casual about this. That's what culture says. It's casual. God says it's a connection for life. Culture says it promotes happiness. And it does make us happy. God intended it for pleasure. But it's not purely about pleasure. God says it doesn't just promote happiness. It preserves holiness in marriage. And I could go on and on. So who informs your view of sexuality? And if you're a Christian, then let God do it. And if you think you're a Christian and God is not informing you, your view of sexuality, then rethink your faith. Maybe repent and turn to God's ways, or maybe stop claiming Christ. So in closing, we need to ask an important question. I think when Paul goes through these issues, for me, feelings of inadequacy pop up. Feelings of, I've been guilty of that, can creep up. So the question is that who among us has not failed in one of these areas, right? Who among us has not been guilty at one point in time or another of any of the things that are mentioned in this section? If not outwardly, inwardly. If not uh, in action, in spirit, right? Who, who, <laughs> who has not failed? The bad news is that what Paul says of the Corinthians there is that it was true of us, or that for some of you, if you're not Christians, it's still true of you. But the good news is that, there's chapter 6, verse 11, right? The good news is that it is of us if we're a Christian, or that it can be, if you're not a Christian, these words, but you were washed. You know what that means? That means that the stain of your sin can be washed away by the blood of Christ. He says you were sanctified. That means you can be set apart to live with God, to be righteous, and to serve him. He says you are justified. That means that you are, if you're a Christian, or you can be declared righteous even though you're not. God can say you're innocent even though you're guilty, and he can, he can make you right with him through faith in Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I want to bring us back around to Sonia and her video. It was a powerful video. I want to bring us back to her What Paul is saying to these Christians is live who you are, become the people that God has made you to be. And if you're not a Christian, then you can be changed. As Sonia said on the video, don't underestimate the power of the gospel because God's grace is sufficient for even the vilest of sinners to forgive us and to change us and to make us into the people that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and women and these boys and girls that have come to hear and to sit under your word. Father, we all need forgiveness. We all need cleansing. We all need to be made right with you. And we are so incapable of doing that. 
except through the faith, uh, through our faith in your son Jesus, to forgive us of our sins, to wash us of the stains of any guilt, to change our hearts so that we want to follow you in every area with every part of our being so that we can have new and eternal life, a relationship with you. May we not hear condemnation, although Paul speaks harshly and in, in, a, in a hard way for those, these Christians and for us who, who are engaged in sin. But may we remember that that is who we used to be if we're Christians, and we can be different people if we aren't. May we always turn to the gospel and the good news of Jesus, living the life that we could never live in perfect obedience, dying for our sins, being raised from the dead to make us new, to forgive us, so that those things can be past tense and not present tense. And we ask it in the name of our God and our Savior and our Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you again next week as we continue on 1 Corinthians.